And now, more sports and torts with David Spada and Elliot Heron. And now, part two of our interview with Jackie Sherrill. So how did you end up going back to Pittsburgh when Johnny Majors decided to go to Tennessee? Well, I was at Washington State. Uh, I wanted to be a head coach. I had a chance to go to Kansas State uh, the third year, but I mean, second year, but, you know, I had a goal to be a head coach by 31, and so I went to uh, uh, had an opportunity to go to Washington State, and I remember calling Coach Bryant, and I said, I said, Coach, uh, they want me to stay at Pittsburgh because they're kind of concerned that Coach Majors will leave next year and go to Tennessee. And he kind of, you know, talked like Coach Bryant talked and said, I can't tell you what to do. But then he told me what he did when he was in the same situation and he had the chance to stay at Alabama or go to Maryland. And his father-in-law told him, uh, if they want you now, they'll want you later. If they don't want you now, they don't want you later. And when he said, when Coach Bryant told me that, that's when I knew I was going to go to Washington State. <laughs> and so when I went there and during the interview, they were concerned I would, would not stay. And I told them it would be only two jobs I would leave for. And that would be Pittsburgh or Alabama. Well, they they figured both of those jobs wasn't going to come open. <laughs> when you took the Washington State job, did you think you would be there for more than a year at least? Oh yes, yes, yes. I remember this when I, I got there. Uh, there was the town was only three thousand population. That's excluding the, the university. There was one restaurant, uh, one hotel that probably had 10 rooms, maybe five rooms. And so, you know, going from Pittsburgh to Pullman, Washington, uh, was a pretty good uh, change in, in scenery. Yeah, I would have thought the change from Ames, Iowa to Pittsburgh was would have been an option. Well, we got lucky because but, uh, I, I hired... Washington State's uh, just coach was office sort of out there. Yeah, so yes. But I hired a, a coach off of UCLA staff, and we had USC's and UCLA's recruiting list, and we went after all the kids over over 25, meaning that, uh, and, well, it may have been 30 back then, but we went we went after the kids that were right over the list. And we were able to get like five or six kids that were on their list that ended up being all packed in, back then, packed in players. So the recruiting was the year we went there and went there was really outstanding. And it ended up winning a lot of games where that class did. Did Johnny Majors recommend you to the athletic director Pitt to succeed him? I, I, I can't answer that, uh, but, you know, being there, they they all knew me. So, uh, you know, I was probably their choice uh, and the player's choice, so uh, it was pretty easy transition to come back. And if I had been a better coach, uh, we probably would have won it two, two times in the five years that I was there. 
What was the recruiting process for Dan Marino like? You know, Danny was not a hard recruit. Uh, you know, his family worked was Pittsburgh. He came from, you know, uh, right there in Oakland, uh, went to Central Catholic. And Danny really wanted to play football, uh, baseball. And I was, I was concerned it was going to be Arizona State or Arizona or Clemson because Danny wanted to play baseball, great baseball player. And I uh, was fortunate enough to talk him out of it. Uh, and I don't know if I talked him out of it because he still wanted to play baseball. And Kansas City signed him, drafted him, and they came in, came in to sign him. But back then, the NCAA changed the intern right in the middle of the year. You had Danny Ames, you had uh, uh, Gibson at Michigan State, and you had Wilson that was had signed with Maryland that were on football scholarships that were allowed to sign baseball contracts and go play baseball in the summer. So they changed that interp. It wasn't up in, for a vote. They just sat in the around the table at the conference, NCAA conference office, and changed the interp. So if Danny had signed a baseball contract, then he could not, or any kid could not be on a scholarship. They would have to pay their way to, to college to play football. So, you know, it was kind of interesting, and I was kind of, you know, glad he didn't sign a Major League Baseball contract. How good a quarterback was he coming out of high school? He was a man playing with kids. He was so far ahead of other kids, it was unreal. I mean, it, he all-star games. Or just, I mean, he he just he was just a, that far ahead of everybody else. We filmed him uh, as a early when he came in. His throwing motion. I asked him, Danny, who taught you how to throw the football? And he says, My dad. I said, well, what did he tell you? And he said, the ball goes up and out. And, you know, technically that's very simple, but that's what the ball does. <clears throat> you know, everybody else throws in all these angles. And, and But if you want to teach a kid how to throw the football, just put it in his mind that the ball goes up and out. You teach multiple – or you coach multiple Hall of Famers in the NFL – Dan Marino, Chris Stolman. Was Dan the best one you ever coached talent wise? Uh, what position? You know, that, I mean, I, I think I had, you know, I was very lucky. I had the opportunity to coach probably the best in, in almost every position, you know, from, you know, recruiting Tony, but Danny, uh, Chris Stolman or, or, I mean, you can go Ray Chillers, you can go on Johnny Holland, I mean, go on and on, uh, uh, Smith, I mean, J.J. Johnson, I mean, some of the best linemen. Our offensive line at Pittsburgh was going left to right was Jimbo Covert, uh, Emil Bors, uh, Russ Grimm, 
Bill Freilich, and Mark May. That was better than most NFL teams back then. Well, they all, well, two of them are in the NFL. Uh, well, you know, uh, and then you had Hugh Green, Ricky Jackson at defensive ends. But, you know, Russ Grimm's in. There's no question Jimbo will, will go into the Hall of Fame, Freilich will, and, and Mark May eventually will. But you knew where to play, guys, though, because Russ Grimm was a defensive lineman originally, right? No, he was a quarterback, fullback, linebacker. And we recruited him to play linebacker. And I, when I called him in the office and I said, Russ, we're going to move you to offensive line. I didn't say center, but I may have. And he said, Coach, I've never had my hand in the dirt. I don't want to do that. And I said, I said, Russ, I'm not asking you if you want to. I'm telling you that you're going to go to offensive line. And so he called Joe Pendry at West Virginia, and he was going to transfer. And so I, I two days later, I hired Joe Pendry, and Joe Pendry's in the locker room at Pitt. And Russ walks in, and he says, what are you doing here? And he said, Coach Harold, just hired me. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> But he 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 had so much natural ability. Of all the there's two centers that I've I've had that I mean with great great natural ability, and both of them lasted a long time. Uh, Jerry Fontenot was the other one I had at A and M, and Jerry was a high school uh, state wrestling champ out of Louisiana. But both of them had just unnatural uh, ability. They could do an awful lot of things. When you went to Texas A&M from Pitt, you you signed a contract that then was for a lot of money. Nowadays, it's not quite peanuts, but it, it pales in comparison to what coaches make nowadays. Well, but there were there were other coaches that had contracts bigger than what I signed. You know, Joe Paterno at, at Penn State had a bigger contract. Uh, you just couldn't get his contract. Never could. <clears throat> no one ever got his. But even back then, he had a million dollar life insurance policies paid up. So you know, over the life of the policy, all all it was doing was generating uh, interest that he ended up being able. So, and I want to say he had four one million dollar life insurance policies paid up. Was that loss to Penn State in 1981 the toughest loss of your career? Uh, yes. We were number one in the nation, or one of them. And uh, we would have had a chance to win it all. But, you know, we got greedy. Uh, we had Danny, and uh, they were dropping nine, and we we didn't run the football. We just kept on trying. We kept on throwing it. And, uh, you know, so then we ended up going and playing but it helped. You know, we went and played uh, Georgia in the Sugar Bowl with, with Herschel Walker. And, you know, we we were behind. And, you know, I called his ball was on the 20-yard line. I called Danny, and I said, we got plenty of time. And we moved it down the field, and the ball was on the 
uh, I want to say 34-yard line. I, it was uh, fourth down, fourth and three. And I called I called time and I called Danny over and I said, Danny, we either can kick the field goal tight and try to get the ball back or we can go for it and try to win it. And he looked me right square in the eye and he says, Coach, we're not here to tie this damn game. <laughs> so we go for it. And the play that was called was we were taking the two two of the two backs and going to cross them clear, take the two backs, cross them, and they were going to pick the linebackers because we knew that they would either be in, probably a man and playing the eight-man front. Well, they blitzed. They played three deep and blitzed eight. So the, the backs had the block. Then he saw the blitz and and read it, pre-read the blitz. He actually took uh, two steps deeper than his normal drop and threw the ball to the tight end on the on the skinny post. And that was, yeah, you know, it, it, it was had to be perfect execution to win the game because they they rushed eight. We only had you know seven to block. So Danny had to read the pre-read the the, the blitz and get rid of the ball before one could get to it. Was Marino's greatest asset his arm or his ability to read defenses? All of it. All of it. Plus quick, quick feet. You know, people don't realize, you know, Danny wasn't wasn't going to run a 4-5. But in the pocket, he was quicker than most 4-5 guys. Every day after practice, he would jump rope. He had a little had a little board in front of his locker, and he'd come in every day and jump rope for about ten minutes. How did the twelfth man start at A and M? Well, that's a long story, but basically, uh, going to the bonfire and, and watching him build and getting involved with the bonfire, and then coming back and watching him pass the red pot one night. And basically what that you missed the passing was that you took slats. So the first one bent over and he took three slats from the axe handle. And when you have enough, you say, take your best lick. And he did that. The axe handle broke. So when he breaks, you start all over. So he had seven slats with an axe handle, no emotion. And I, I knew what that felt like because I'd been there before. And I said, there's 40,000 students. I can find 11 kids that are tough as nails that could care less about their body just to cover kickoffs. And so we put an ad in the paper. There were 252 that signed up. <clears throat> we whittled it down to 40 and they came out to spring practice and then we would keep 20 in the fall. But, you know, when you look at how good they were, it, it, it's kind of like you're taking a special op team and you're training them to do one thing. Uh, they were on the field 30 minutes prior to practice doing open field tackling. They'd go through practice as scout team players and get beat up. And then they would stay out 30 minutes covering kickoffs. 
And they had an hour a day working on kickoffs. And so that was five hours a week. And you look at teams today, they probably spend 10 minutes covering kickoffs. Was there any resistance from anybody at the university? Not not at the university. On the coaching staff, there was. <laughs> they they think you're crazy? Yes, they did. <laughs> R.C. thought I was crazy. R.C. said, Coach, you sure you didn't fall off that stack? <laughs> and he said, there's no way you can take kids that are not recruited uh, and cover kickoffs. But they were good. And it wasn't like they didn't go against the best. You know, Tim Brown, uh, uh, Metcalf, uh, uh, Bo Jackson, they won, they won against the best out there. And uh, their average was 12.5. I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, they were number one in the nation, two out of the five, and always in the top five. But 12.5 today, if you got a 25-yard average, then you're good. You coached Tony Dorsett. You, just, you mentioned Herschel Walker and now Bo Jackson. Was Tony the best out of those three in college? He was the fastest. Uh, you know, he wasn't the biggest. But you never got a shot on Tony. You know, Tony, I don't think Tony ever got hit in college. The only time he ever got hit was in practice. And that was my fault, you know, because we were doing a half line drill and I knew the play and I had the linebacker and I shoved the linebacker outside to scrape off the, the defensive end and he ran off tackle and the linebacker hit him, burst his chin. And Coach Majors would never let me do that again. <laughs> never had a half-line drill again. Winning three consecutive Southwest Conference uh, titles, I, I assume, is among the highlights of your career, and then uh, going to bowl games after each of those, winning a couple. Well, the, yeah, the Cotton Bowl, you know, years ago, you had four bowl games, the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl. And those were the big ones, mm-hmm. and the, you know, and and they signified, the, the Cotton Bowl signified uh, that you were the champs of the Southwest Conference. And so that carried, I remember, and this is a true story, I'm, when I first went to A&M, uh, there was, I had a alumni drive me around in Houston because I didn't know where I was going. And uh, we're on I-10, that's the interstate. And we start talking about bowl games, and I said, you know, there's plenty of bowl games. You know, there's Gator Bowl, I mean, plenty. And they just started a great bowl game in Hawaii. He slams on the brakes in the middle of I-10, he looked at me and he says, Jackie, the only place we want to go is the Cotton Bowl. You get us to the Cotton Bowl, we'll bring in the palm trees, the sand, and we'll bring in the, the water. Because that was the standard. And Texas had been to the either Texas or Arkansas, but basically Texas and kind of like the Sugar Bowl to the SEC. You know, that was the standard. And uh, 
uh, you wanted are the Rose Bowl to the Pac-10 or Big Ten. And that meant so much to get to the Cotton Bowl. So when we went to the Cotton Bowl, played Auburn, and beat them uh, uh, 36 to 16, uh, that was a big, big deal. Was it hard to join a program when you went to Mississippi State that hadn't had any success in years? Uh, yes and no, but, you know, I think all coaches are kind of uh, different. You know, they I don't know of any coach that's ever told you that he's had a bad recruiting year or doesn't think he can win. So, uh, But I, I kind of had the advantage because growing up in Biloxi, I knew – I knew the, the climate, and in the state of Mississippi, if you can keep the kids in the state and get the majority of the kids, you're going to have a chance to win because there's an awful lot of great players that are two stars that end up being five stars and that no one knows about. Yeah. East Texas is in Mississippi are kind of very similar. I mean, look at Brett Favre. No one knew about him. There's a lot of I mean, there was a little old running back out of and that went to Jackson State that no one knew about either. <laughs> yeah. Walter Payton did pretty well for himself, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, I mean there's I mean you can go in the history, there's there's an awful lot of great players that came out of Mississippi and there still is. I mean, you look at today and there's there's quite a few that have come out then that were, you know, not recruited by anybody. And, you know, I during the when I was there, I, I used to pass on some kids in the Delta that I kept kicking myself uh, because, you know, I just felt that they would be great players one of these days, but we just didn't have room. And sure enough, you know, some of those kids end up being first-round draft choices. Is there a player that you missed out on that you think was your biggest loss? Yeah, there was a receiver uh, that went to Southern Mississippi. There was a, a defense uh, offensive lineman from the Delta. Those two kids are continuing to pop up and that ended up being first-round draft choices. And, you know, I wish I'd been smarter. And, but, uh, you know, if, if you're at Mississippi State, you got to work harder. You got to do a better job of evaluating, and it, it just like the middle linebacker at Mississippi State today, he was a two star, uh, and he'll be probably a first round draft choice. You look at you know so, uh, the defensive end, and he was a two star. He was a quarterback out of high school, and even the middle linebacker was a quarterback, I believe, out of high school. You know, we had Greg Favors that came out of Atlanta, for example. That, no one really recruited, and he was a quarterback in high school, played point guard on, and led the city in Atlanta in, in scoring, but he was going to be a linebacker in college. And you just have to evaluate kids and kind of place them. David Smith, I mean, Stewart, the kid out of North Alabama that played for the Falcons for years, uh, same thing. Neither, no one recruited him. <laughs> Was there ever a temptation to go into pro ball? Uh, in the 80s, I had a chance uh, with the uh, Oilers 
and Bud Adams, uh, and we became friends and and uh, state friends. But Bud Adams came up and visited, and I just felt like you know I, I was doing some things here, and it you know I wasn't smart enough back then to even realize what what I was being offered. After you retired from Mississippi State in 03, what were the temptations to come back to coaching? I have to assume people came a-calling. Well, you you had an opportunity. Uh, you know, but, you know, I started doing some other things, doing radio and television, and then, you know, as the years kind of passed by, you know, can you coach? Yes. Uh, you know, I've done some consulting work for especially in the kicking game. Uh, and, you know, that's one place that coaches in the country have, you, you'd see, and I feel really bad for the players because there's no one that can coach techniques. They have no idea why a kid misses a field goal or, you know, it may not have been his, his fault. It may have been the holder's fault, but they don't know that. That does it for another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. David and I would like to thank our guest, Jackie Sherrill, and our executive producer, Dave Olson. Tune in again next time to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. <laughs>